Turn to John chapter 16. We're going to finish up this chapter and begin chapter 17. And as Jesus comes to the end of this time of teaching his disciples before he's arrested and crucified, there's finally some acceptance from the disciples that they need to hear these things, that these things are true, that that Jesus knows what he's doing and what he's talking about. It's kind of funny to hear the disciples say some of the things they say. Even as they say, oh, right, now we get it. Jesus says to them, no, you don't. (laughs) Really, you don't. But then he goes on. And he, uh, he gives them just a very sweet promise, just such an assurance, and says that everything that he's been trying to teach them, he's been doing it for a reason, and it's that they would have peace in him. And then he proceeds to pray for them. And we'll get into the prayer in chapter 17 as we continue in the coming weeks. But I just want to read that transition from him teaching them to him beginning to pray for them. And uh, it's such a a beautiful thing seeing his love for his disciples, his tenderness for them, his concern for them and what they're going to face. Even as they're going to abandon him. His concern is for them. Please stand for the reading of God's word. John 16, we'll start in verse 29. Read into the first couple of verses of chapter 17. His disciples, Jesus' disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the immediate context of this passage, Jesus has been teaching the disciples numerous things. We've studied most of them. Well, we've picked out a few things and studied them. 
He's taught much more than I could possibly explain in any number of sermons in the last couple of chapters, but the most immediate context is Jesus explaining to them that he's going to die, and that means that he's going to leave them. And that then he's going to be raised from the dead and come back to them. That being the good news. But that there's this hard thing coming first. He's also been teaching them that they can pray to God in his name, in Jesus' name, and receive what they ask for. He's been teaching them that he came from the Father and that he is returning to the Father. And he has been warning them that they will scatter from him. And of course, that continues right into the passage that we read this morning. He says, an hour, verse 32, is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. They will scatter from him. And yet, he then continues immediately into verse 33, right after having said, they're going to scatter and leave him alone. Verse 33 These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. So that in him we may have peace. He explains all of these things, including that the disciples are going to scatter. Now how is that something that brings us or them peace? Well, he's warning them that they're going to desert him. And that warning is calculated to give them peace in him. These things he has been teaching so that we may have peace in him. When you consider the depths of your own sin, doesn't this also bring you peace? The disciples are warned that they will sin as Jesus begins to face his final hours, as he begins to face arrest, trial, being beaten, being crucified. The disciples will not have what it takes even to stay awake with him and pray before that stuff, much less to stand by him as he is crucified, to stand with him. Now, how does that bring, how does that bring them peace? Well, that doesn't. Their sin, their failures, that doesn't bring them peace. But Jesus warning them, that he knows what they're going to do, that they will sin, and that he still loves them, and that he intends for them to have peace in him. That gives us and them great peace. Not our sin, not the fact of our failures, 
Not our inability to stay awake and pray for five minutes, right? But that after that, we look back and we remember, he said, do you believe? You'll scatter. These things I've told you so that you may have peace in me. We see our own sin. We remember this promise that we can be in Christ. We see him coming back after they've abandoned him. And what does he do? He comes back and he appears to them, doesn't he? And when he comes back, what does he do? Not what we would do. We would be all recrimination, all I told you so, all how come you never listen, right? That's certainly what I would be. But he comes back and he says, peace, peace, my peace. He's giving them peace. That's what he says when he shows back up, right? Even doubting Thomas, who wasn't there the first time. He shows up in the locked upper room and they're afraid. And so when you see your own sin, you see your own failures, you see this warning, and you see how he responds with mercy, it brings you great peace. Not so that you have ability to sin in peace, right? But so that you have the ability to repent in peace. And in peace meaning that you have confidence to come into his presence, bringing your sin before him. Not pretending like it doesn't exist, not denying that you've actually sinned, not having also brought this good thing that you did to make up for it, but just bringing you and your sin into his presence and saying, I repent. And you can do that because he's given us Peace. Peace with God and man. Remember that when Jesus was born, the angels declared what? Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. This is Jesus continuing his mission from the Father. He says he's come and done only what the Father has told him to do. And what has he come to do but to make peace, to make a way to God, into heaven, for his chosen people. What a beautiful peace that is. And the peace that we have in him, ultimately in heaven, cannot be compared to anything here on earth.
A lot of people talk about heaven as uh, something that they, you know, can take or leave. Well, you know, if so-and-so is not going to be there, I don't want to be there either. Or, you know, if, uh, if we're not going to be allowed to do such and such in heaven, I'm not sure I want to go. You guys have heard this? And, and, and maybe you've had these kinds of thoughts, like, isn't this going to be boring? Heaven, what's, what's the good of it? Why would we want to go? Worshiping God, I don't like church that much. Why? I mean, it's going to be like church for eternity. It just doesn't sound like that much fun. And yet, here's the thing that Jesus is talking about. He's saying peace, peace. And the more you live in this life and the more you recognize the lack of peace in this world, what does Jesus say? In this world, you will have troubles, tribulations, afflictions, right? But take courage, I have overcome the world. In this world, you have tribulations. We receive the peace of his kingdom, victorious over the world, having established peace. In the Roman times, everybody understood the value of peace. They had lived in an era of crazy war. And if we lived someplace other than America, we might be a little bit more inclined to love the fact that peace is coming. We speak even today of the the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Why? Well, because the Romans conquered the world and established peace on land and in the seas through their military might, allowing people to do things like travel. Sail in ships with cargo and sell it and, and buy and trade without pirates. They built roads. They did all kinds of things that were good for peace here in this world. And yet they began to persecute God's people, didn't they? It was the power of Rome and the hatred of God's people themselves, the Israelites, that put Jesus to death on the cross. And yet, even as that is about to happen, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Do you want peace? People of London want peace, don't they? Think of the attacks that have taken place there or in Paris. They've begun to recognize the value of peace. When you see your own sin and you, you think of the, the mayhem that it causes in your own conscience, in your own, in your own life, when you, when you see the effects that it has on your children and on those around you, when you see the effects of other people's sins on your own life and those that you love, you look around you and you see the lack of peace. The more you understand the evil of sin, the more you understand the results of sin, the more you love the thought of heaven. Where every 
tear has been wiped away, where we have been given peace forevermore in his presence. What a beautiful thing. What a gift. What a thing to want. I can't understand how anybody besides a foolish young man would think of heaven as boring. The older you get and the more vulnerable you are, the more the idea of peace sounds appealing. We have so many promises related to this peace. We think of our own sins as preventing it. In 2 Timothy 2, 13, the Apostle Paul writes, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? He cannot deny himself. He remains faithful because we are in him, he cannot deny himself. If you are in him, no matter how your faith wavers, no matter how weak it is, he cannot deny himself. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but doesn't doesn't there a verse right, right, right around in that same place that says, if we deny him, he will deny us? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. If you are not in him, then he will deny you. The sheep and the goats will be separated. But if we are just faithless, (laughs) and there's a world of difference, isn't there, between faithlessness and denying, and and remember, what did Peter do? Just a short while after our passage, he denied Christ, didn't he? Three times. And so, how does this make sense? How do, we, how do we work this out? Well, it's important to work it out because otherwise we could just be left with all kinds of crazy solutions in our own minds. Well, maybe Peter became a Christian and then wasn't a Christian, and then he became a Christian again. Or maybe, um, you know, I don't know, you, you could come up with all kinds of theories Right? But we, when we run into things that are confusing in the Bible, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's a promise, a very sweet promise to us. And we know that our faith is very weak. 
And we know that we face many temptations and that we succumb over and over again to those temptations. And we know that we will even be ashamed of Jesus Christ and even sometimes deny him. And if we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. Those things are true. And yet, and yet, if you are in him, even these sins will be forgiven and you will have peace. Peter, Peter himself had peace. And you can have peace. We bring all of our most wicked sins into his presence for forgiveness. We don't hold on to one of them. That one time I did this. That's going to keep me out forever. No. That one time you did that. That's what you bring to him. And he forgives, and he gives you peace. Now, in this world, we do have tribulations, don't we? The word tribulation is used a lot in the Bible. And just a few verses earlier, you wouldn't know it, but the same word is used in verse 21, translated a little bit differently, translated as anguish. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the tribulation, the anguish. Because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Or it's often translated affliction, tribulation, affliction, the anguish that is in this world. We see it in Matthew 13, 20, and 21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. When affliction or persecution arise because of the word. Now, because of the word... That seems to imply that at least some of the difficulties that Christians face are because of the fact that they are Christians. Do you understand? You face afflictions, you face anguish and tribulations in part because you are a Christian, because of the word. This, of course, is made explicit by Paul when he says 
Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The book of 2 Timothy. And so it shouldn't come as a shock to you because I often find it helpful to remind you of that verse. But think about that new way of looking at it because of the word. Afflictions arise because of the word. Why do afflictions or tribulation arise because of the word? Well, the answer is they won't. They don't. Unless you proclaim the word with your words and actions. If you proclaim the word, and what is the word? This. This. What has God required of you? Through your words and your actions, you are demonstrating and declaring this to the watching world. What God has done, what God has said, what he requires, what he has accomplished, all of that is shown in your words and in your actions as a Christian. It must be. Or else, what are you? What has changed? If you do that, the world will hate you because the world has animosity for the God of this word. The world hates the God of this word because the God of this word, our one and only true God, requires things of them and they don't want those commands. They hate those commands. What did we read earlier in John? The word dwelt among us, and yet, what? They rejected because they, they loved the darkness, right? They rejected him because they loved the darkness. The word is a light, a lamp unto your feet, and a light unto your path. But they didn't want a light. They didn't want to see the right path. And so they hated him. And so they hate God. And yet, when you declare the word with your words and actions, you are shining light. And so tribulations arise because of the word. Because they, become, they, they hate you for shining that light, for shining God's light, because they hate God. In other words, don't take it personally. They're only enemies of you because they hate your master. You say, well, it's kind of hard not to take it personally. It seems awfully personal. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. And really, you ought to be offended. You ought to be offended when they speak of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the way that they do. When they speak of your Savior and they mock Him, they scorn Him to shame, Yeah, you take that personally. Why? Because you love him. Because you love what he has done for you. Because you are united to him in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Of course it's painful. Of course it's personal. How could it not be when, as we saw last week, this is a relationship of love that we have with God. When people attack the person that you love most, of course you become angry. It's right. Think back to the Israelites. You think of them leaving Egypt with the mighty hand of God demonstrating his power. All of the miracles that were performed, including the plagues, the death of so many of the Egyptians, the destruction of their army as they attempted to follow behind the Israelites and cross the sea. And as the Israelites finally, 40 years later, are coming into the promised land, the people living in Jericho knew about God, didn't they? They'd heard the stories. They knew how he'd brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. They knew that the Israelites were being given the land. And there were two responses. Most everybody simply doubled down in their hatred of God, their hatred of his people. But Rahab, what did Rahab do? Rahab loved God and loved his people and saved the spies, didn't she? And what kind of blessing did she receive in return? Life and peace. Everybody was destroyed except for her and her family in that city. Will we, will we be God's people? Knowing that our Savior has conquered the world, that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, that he will crush his enemies beneath his feet. And will we be afraid like the Israelites to go into the promised land? After what he's demonstrated to us? 
Today, the world knows that God exists. The world knows that Christians have been freed from slavery to sin. They've seen it. They've seen the power of God. But most of them love their sin and refuse to repent. And so Christians are just a reminder to them. You, you are just a reminder to them, just like the Israelites, as they were camped next to Jericho. What is that? That's a threat. You're a reminder to them that no matter how hard they try to hold on to this world and the pleasures of this life, they will not be able to keep them because God has given this world to his son, Jesus Christ, and to his people. To his people. To us. God has given them to his son for his people. And that is how we begin to reconcile this tribulation with Jesus' teaching that we can have peace. Because that's a hard thing, isn't it? Thinking about the fact that in this world we have tribulation and him saying he has overcome the world. And yet... Him saying, I've spoken these things to you so that you may have peace in me. Because it's not just our sin that causes tribulation for us, right? I've just gotten done saying it's also the sin of those who are not God's people. It's also the fact of living in a sinful, fallen world. Think about the the great miseries of life that just happen because this world is fallen, because of Adam's sin. Just the hardness of your work, the pain of labor with a child. Nobody to blame for that except Adam. You know, this is just living in this world. It's filled with tribulations regardless. This is is the uh, two people trying to walk through a swinging door at the same time. You know, at restaurants you always go in the one and out the other. If somebody goes the wrong direction and two people try to walk in, boom, and they slam into each other. Who's sinning? Nobody's sinning. And yet, this world has tribulations, doesn't it? (laughs) Miserable things happen. And ultimately, death. You don't have to be sinning, driving your car, texting, and being distracted, and so forth, for somebody to die, do you? can just be an accident, can be a mechanical failure. And 
And so we face tribulations, we face afflictions because of our sin. We face afflictions and tribulations and anguish because of other people's sin. We face them because we are Christians and the world hates us because of that. And we face them because we live in this fallen world. But take courage. He has overcome the world. Just like the Israelites had to take courage and believe that God already held the victory in his hand over the city of Jericho, so we must take courage and believe that God has already given Christ victory over this world. Though we have yet to receive it. The Israelites walked by faith around Jericho, looking forward to receiving the land of peace, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of blessing. And yet we read in the New Testament that really that's not even what they were looking for. That city of Jericho or any of the other cities that they captured What were they looking forward to? They were really looking forward to a heavenly city. The new Jerusalem. Though the world brings many tribulations our way, regardless of which kind or for which reason, our sin, somebody else's sin, sinful fallen world, all of the anguish that comes, all of the tribulations, we trust Christ to be our protection. This is what it means to be, to take courage, to be courageous. Why would you have to be courageous? Well, you have to be courageous because there are tribulations. And so you are courageous through the tribulations and you are at peace in the tribulations. Because you know that his ultimate peace is coming. Calvin says, In this regard, we ought to submit to Christ not only that we may obey God. In other words, that's the goal. Not only so that we can obey do we submit, but because nothing is more lovely than that subjection since it brings to us eternal life. Nothing is more lovely since it brings to us that eternal peace with God. It takes courage to be at peace through tribulations. And Jesus' words are meant to encourage us so that we can have peace. So, now, the the huge question that remains is, if Christ has overcome the world, Why? Why are there still tribulations? 
Why am I still miserable in this way? Why am I still sinning in this way? Why the remaining curse? Why is the world left groaning? In 2 Peter 3.9, we read, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Think about Rahab again. God could have simply killed everybody all through Canaan all at once, right? Said, there you go. And yet through Rahab, what do we see? We see an example of repentance and blessing. Through Rahab, Christ comes. Why is there still affliction? Because God is patient. Because God is patient. But also, and so that because of his patience, others may be brought into the kingdom. And so that's what our work is. Our work is doing his will. And his will includes sending out his people into the world to draw others in. Be of good courage. Calvin gives a few other reasons why afflictions remain. And it connects with our memory verse as a church this week, talking about how you're supposed to listen to what your father says and your mother says. At the end, it says that, what's the, what's the last phrase? What's the word? I can't think of the word for, for some reason. Uh, for discipline. Uh, reproofs, thank you. Reproofs for discipline are a way of life. <laughs> the way of life. Reproofs for discipline. And isn't that so much of what the afflictions are that we receive? God sends afflictions of all all three kinds that we've talked about, right? From our sins, other people's sins, and just the world. Why? As reproofs for discipline, so that we may be obedient. And that's one of the things that Calvin brings up. He says, our sluggishness must be corrected by various afflictions. Sluggishness. 
We must be awakened to seek a remedy for our distress. In other words, afflictions come so that we realize there's something wrong and we need something. It's so that you begin to change your outlook about heaven. So that no longer do you think that sounds boring, but you think that sounds like the most wonderful thing you could possibly ever receive. You begin to think that as you suffer afflictions. Calvin continues on, he says, So the Lord does not intend that our minds shall be cast down, but rather that we shall fight keenly, which is impossible if we are not certain of success. Think about the Israelites again. It's impossible unless you're certain of success to walk into the kinds of situations that God said he was going to give them victory in. Over and over and over and over. Again, Calvin continues, If we must fight while we are uncertain as to the result, all our zeal will quickly vanish. How many times have you been there? You're ready to fight. The moment you get started, your zeal is gone because you're not, cert- you're not certain you can actually win. When, therefore, Christ calls us to the contest, he arms us with assured confidence of victory. Take courage. He has overcome the world. And he says that before he has even risen from the grave. After he has risen from the grave, can there be any doubt that he has power over everything. Even sin and death are laid before him. And he is victorious. And so we enter into the conflict of this life, the conflict with our own sins, the conflict with the sins of others, and the struggle of living in a sinful fallen world, confident that he has overcome and that we will receive the promised blessing. Though still, as Calvin concludes, we must toil hard. And doesn't that, doesn't that just sum it up perfectly? Though still we must toil hard. He has won the victory. Though still we must toil hard. Why? Because he's commanded us to. Why? Because he's prepared good works beforehand for us to do. Do you want to do them? How could you not? He's your king. He's promising peace. 
What a blessing he offers to his people, the promised land. Peace forevermore. No doubt at all about his victory. Let's pray and thank him.